bravery, fear, courage. They're common to our experience. We admire bravery. We long to be courageous and fearless. And yet so often our fear and unwillingness to put ourselves on the line mocks and rebukes us. Les Mis is one of my favourite musicals. The story arc has it all. The powerful tale of redemption, grace and salvation for Jean Valjean. The mighty fall of the proud, self-righteous Inspector Javert. Brought undone by being set free. Unable to accept that sin can be forgiven. That crime can be reprieved. Bravery and self-sacrifice, the remorse of those who were spared while others were taken. There's a grief that can't be spoken. There's a pain that goes on and on. Empty chairs at empty tables. Now my friends are dead and gone. Here they talked of revolution. Here they lit the flame. They sang about tomorrow, and tomorrow never came. From the table in the corner, they could see a world reborn. And they rose with voices ringing. I can hear them now. The very words that they had sung became their last communion on that lonely barricade at dawn. Oh, my friends, my friends, forgive me that I live and you are gone. There's a grief that can't be spoken. There's a pain goes on and on. Marius's friends had understood what was at stake for them. The fear when they chose to take their stand on that barricade was real and palpable. And yet the hope they shared, the dream of a new tomorrow that by then they knew would come no time soon, impelled them to stand firm to the bitter end. It's a work of fiction. But we all understand that what people do in the face of their fears provides a profound insight into who they are, their character, their values, their commitment, and the strength of their belief. It's this understanding that pervades our passage this morning. But before we get there, Let's set the context. We've seen over the past few weeks that what happened when Jesus attended the most awkward of dinner parties. Awkward is putting it mildly. Jesus might have been invited as the guest of honour, but by the end of the dinner, the rest of the guests were fuming, feeling disrespected and insulted because Jesus had seen through them and called out their hypocrisy. The Pharisees took great pride in their piety and strict observance of the law. They were sticklers for the rules. No regulation or detail was too small to escape their notice. In their own eyes, they were the very models of perfection, the standard by which others should be judged. And they were careful to ensure that everyone knew that. And they missed no opportunity to show their disdain for anyone who failed to meet their standards 
of righteous perfection. They expected Jesus to commend them and were shocked, offended and outraged when instead of commendation, they felt the sting of Jesus' condemnation for their neglect of justice and their disdain for God, whose love they had forsaken in order to pursue the praise of men. They claimed to have done everything required to serve God, but in fact, they were only serving themselves. The scribes were no better. They claimed to understand God's law and how to apply it. No nuance was too obscure for their notice. No loophole went unexploited. And no commandment from God was clear enough that it couldn't benefit from the wisdom of their explanatory memoranda, caveats and exemptions. God might have provided the framework, but anyone who wanted to know how to apply the law needed to listen to them. The experts with the wisdom and knowledge to know how to do, ever, do whatever you wanted and still keep on the right side of the law. They expected Jesus to applaud their detailed understanding of what was acceptable to God. And they were shocked, offended and outraged when, instead of applause, they felt the sting of Jesus' condemnation for their promotion of rebellion against God. The dinner party had begun with a warm invitation. When it ended, the guest of honour had become public enemy number one in the eyes of his fellow guests. That this context is important for understanding today's passage is clear from the first word of Luke 12. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples. Connecting words are important. Meanwhile is a bit odd here. In the fairy stories, when the storyline reads, meanwhile, back in the forest, we know that we're about to hear about something that is going on at about the same time that's somehow connected with these events. Obviously, in verse 1, Luke isn't talking about an event that happened at the same time as the memorable dinner party at the Pharisees' home. The incarnate Jesus shared our human limitation of only being able to be in one place at a time. Rather, Luke is telling us that this happened at about the same time and is deeply connected with what just happened. The focus of attention is still hypocrisy. But as Jesus speaks to the disciples, his tone is different. Warning and caution, not accusation and condemnation. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden 
that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. And what you have whispered in the ear of the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Jesus recognises that the error of the Pharisees is contagious. It's the natural tendency of the fallen human nature. Hypocrisy is like the rotten apple in the fruit bowl. If you don't keep watch, if you aren't vigilant to remove rotten fruit at the first sign of decay, before you know it, everything is infected and only fit for the compost heap. The Pharisees put on a good show. They appeared to be the epitome of righteousness. They thought that their disinterest in justice and their apathy for God were well hidden. Truth be told, so well hidden that they weren't even aware of it themselves. But the hidden idols of their hearts, their secret desire for power, prestige, reputation and adulation had suddenly been exposed and shouted from the rooftops. Be on guard, Jesus says, that this doesn't happen to you, my disciples, to you, my brothers and sisters here in Cherrybrook. Putting on a good show isn't enough. The test isn't what we do, but why we do it. As God says to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, it's not, do you come to church regularly? It's, why do you come to church regularly? Are you coming to maintain your image? Because your family expects you to. Because it links you to your heritage. Because it's a place where you're expect, respected and enjoy influence. Or are you coming excited to meet with God, eager to learn from him, yearning to sing his praise and delighting in the opportunity to encourage your brothers and sisters in their walk with him? It's not, do you give as you are able to support the work of the church and to help the poor and oppressed? It's, why do you give to support the work of the church and to help the poor and the oppressed? Is it an expression of gratitude for the blessings you've received from God and a deep desire to show love and mercy to those in distress? Or is your giving the result of obligation? Or do you enjoy the attention that your generosity generates? Jesus is telling us to be careful. It's a slippery start, slope. We can start well, but a little praise, a little adulation, and soon our heart is corrupted and we want to hide our motives to keep our desires hidden. We're naked and afraid before God every bit as much 
as Adam and Eve were naked and afraid when God was walking in the cool of the evening in the Garden of Eden. If hypocrisy is so easy to slip into, if it's so dangerous that even one rotten apple can spoil the whole barrel, how can we be on guard? What can we do? How can we examine ourselves, especially when, as Jeremiah puts it, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure? Who can understand it? Jesus doesn't leave his disciples in suspense, but his answer is probably surprising. In essence, his advice on this topic comes down to a single question. What are you afraid of? Those of you who are of a literary bent will probably be aware that the Sherlock Holmes stories were first published in instalments in the Strand magazine, a magazine edited by one George Nunes. George also published a gossip rag, Titbits, uh, compiling pieces of all the most interesting books, periodicals, and contributors in the world. That's not my opinion. That's what the masthead of the publication said. The September 18, 1897 edition included the following. This story has been attributed to Mr. Conan Doyle. A friend of his had often been told that there is a skeleton in the cupboard of every household, no matter how respectable that household may be, and he determined to put this opinion to a practical test. Selecting the subject of his experiment as a venerable archdeacon of the church, against whom the most censorious critic had never breathed a word, he went to the nearest post office and dispatched a telegram to the reverend gentleman. All is discovered. Fly at once. The archdeacon disappeared and has never been heard of since. I expect that most of us have skeletons in our closet that we would rather not have revealed, though I trust that none of yours are the kind that would cause you to flee the country if there was a prospect of them being revealed, especially not at the moment with the state of our international border closures. But Jesus tells us that our fears give a powerful insight into the why question that helps us understand what's really motivating our hearts. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. What happens in your mind when a work colleague asks, what did you do on the weekend? What goes into deciding whether or not to mention what you did on Sunday morning? 
or the degree of enthusiasm with which you describe it. How does the prospect of being rejected or misunderstood weigh against the opportunity to open the door to others knowing that you're a Christian and the possibility of exploring it more deeply with them? What happens in your mind when an important client suggests that there might be a bit in it for you? It's natural to be afraid in circumstances where our vital interests are at stake, where our reputation and standing in the community is on the line, where important relationships might be harmed, where our financial security and our livelihood might be taken away from us. I don't think that Jesus is telling us here that such fear is wrong and sinful. Rather, he's telling us to keep it in perspective because the power that drives those fears is limited to this life. And so when we weigh up the consequences for our reputation and standing, our relationships, our financial security and our livelihood, we also need to weigh up the eternal consequence for our reputation and standing before God, our relationship with God, our security in Jesus, and our eternal destiny. Too often, for me at least, my responses are shaped more by the people around me than by the God who loves and sustains me. I respond in ways that minimise the target I present, that disguise my motivation and tiptoe around my faith. Too often, my fears tell me that I'm more concerned about the immediate consequences than I am for the glory and honour of my Heavenly Father. That's the yeast of the Pharisees, the hypocrisy that Jesus is calling us to be on guard against. If our acting out of fear of earthly consequences betrays our hypocrisy, what does its opposite look like? Is it self-assured bravery, unwavering confidence and complete absence of doubt? Or is it something different? Jesus tells us that the key to overcoming fear is confidence in God's love. For us as Christians, as redeemed members of the family of God, the basis for us choosing our actions to please God rather than men, to show it by our actions that we would rather displease men than displease God, is grounded in a confidence in how precious we are to God. Are not two spar five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. God isn't distant. 
He's intimately concerned with every aspect of his creation. So much that he doesn't even forget the sparrows that are sold in the markets to a penny, or if you bought four for tuppence, a fifth one was thrown in for free. The God who doesn't forget a single sparrow thinks you are so precious that he bothers to count the hairs on your head. Apparently not so that none of them go astray, since mine keep falling out, but rather because he cares about the minutiae of your life. You are so precious that he remembers every detail about you. You are so precious that he gave his son for you. You're worth more than any number of sparrows and the assurance of his love is the antidote to the fear of earthly consequences. As John puts it in his letter, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. How we act in those circumstances that confront our fears is the bellwether of our standing before God. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. That's not to say either that standing before a congregation and making a declaration of faith on one occasion is sufficient to ensure that you'll be accepted on the day of judgment, nor that a single denial of your faith will result in eternal condemnation. The example of Peter clearly shows us that there's a pathway back from denial. In Acts 15, we hear that Mark had deserted Paul and Barnabas in Pamphylia, and yet we know that this deserter went on to write the Gospel of Mark. This is not the once-off. It's the habit of a lifetime. The question of whether you, you are, as 1 Peter 3.15 puts it, always prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Are you the one who lets your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Before Jesus turns back to address the crowd in the next section of the, of, of, that comes after this, he has one more word about fear to his disciples. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. There are two things I want to mention briefly about this. The first is to look at the first word. It's when 
not if. I think that many of us, having grown up in a society where the church held a privileged and protected position, feel surprised and disappointed as our legal system shifts to reject God's word, to declare that it's unacceptable to identify sin for what it is, to demand that we refrain from praying to people that might be brought the people might be brought to repentance and requiring full allegiance to the God of secularism. But Jesus makes it clear that the world we grew up in is the aberration. We shouldn't be surprised when our faith brings us in conflict with secular authorities. It's almost inevitable. A question of when, not if. Jesus assures us that we will not be alone in those circumstances. For God, who has numbered the hairs on our head, the one who sees us as precious and beloved, will not desert us in our time of need. We don't need to be afraid because their power over us is limited. And we don't need to fear that we won't know what to say because the Holy Spirit will teach us. On rare occasions, this might be an inspired word of defence, convicting words from God himself, such as Stephen's defence before his stoning, or Peter before the Sanhedrin, or Paul before Agrippa. But most often, the words the Holy Spirit will give us in those times will have been taught to us in the course of a lifetime of acknowledging God before men, a lifetime of deepening our relationship with him, and a lifetime of exploring his word, applying it to our lives, and letting it shape our every thought, desire, deed, and attitude. Our defence, when we're put on trial for our faith, cannot be to claim that we're not guilty of the charge or to hope that we'll escape on some technicality. Rather, in those circumstances, our defence would do well to be modelled on that of Martin Luther. When he was on trial, he was asked if he recanted from his heresy. His brief reply was, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for us it would be courts and parliaments, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this warning from Scripture against the danger of slipping into hypocrisy. Heavenly Father, we know 
that often our fears limit the extent to which we identify with you. Father, they keep us from being bold and courageous. That they keep us from doing the things that we know that your spirit is prompting us to do. Father, help us to keep watch over our fears. Father, to recognise them for what they are. And Father, when we are afraid, Father, help us to recall how much you love us, how much you have given for us, and the eternal future that you have for us in Christ. Heavenly Father, help us to be wholeheartedly committed to you. Father, to stand firm and not to be shaken. Father, to when we are afraid, are afraid to turn to you and to rely on you and to trust that you will always teach us what needs to be said in every circumstance, no matter how dangerous and threatening it appears. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus, who gave his life for us, that we might be your sons and daughters. Amen.